Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I am honored to have back with me the venerable Captain Michael. How are you doing, Michael? I'm all right. Uh, just glad I'm able to uh, record today. Um, localized power outages in my town today because a storm came through yesterday. But uh, I got, I kept my power. I had people over recharging their phones yesterday at my house. <laughs> well, at least you have like a little community. People can feel like they can actually come over and do that, right? That's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would be a little uh, upset if people from my little, uh, it's not a cul-de-sac, it's just a dead-end street came up to my apartment. I would have to, uh, I don't know, brandish weapons or something. I'd be too worried they might jump me for heroin money. Uh, but that's not why we are here today. Um, we are here to talk about world welding. So that is building coherent, believable science fiction settings. And I will be uh, the student today because I have never actually taken the venture for writing science fiction. Uh, I've been intimidated at what I assume must uh, require immense amount of knowledge and research, but we'll find out if my worries are warranted. But first, uh, we're going to do some shilling. The only thing I really want to focus on today is my Kickstarter campaign. That's right. So if you're listening to this uh, roundabout when it comes out, the Kickstarter campaign will still be going on. Uh, it'll be going on for two months. It ends, uh, I think, the 26th of September. Uh, yeah, so what we're doing is we're raising money, or I'm raising money, to fund two different artists to commission uh, a bunch of art, actually, for both of them. So from uh, one artist, I'm doing, I think it's like six, yeah, six book covers total I'd like him to do. The other, uh, essentially, a book cover plus 12 other images. As you can imagine, that's a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of money for a poor author like me. So if you'd like to help me out and you know help them out you know get them to be able to live off of their work check out my kickstarter campaign it's going to be in the link um to this podcast both on soundcloud and on youtube and wherever else i'll have it there or you can go to my website wildislelit.com there's a gigantic photo you click on it as you scroll down the home page and it'll take you right there uh and that, that's it. I'm not even going to show my editing service, though I do have that, and it does help me eat. So if you want to clean up your manuscript, go over to wildislelit.com slash editing. But uh, Michael, do you have anywhere you want to send people so they can keep up with your amazing science fiction? Uh, mostly, if you want to catch up with me, find me on Minds, minds.com slash A-E-T-E-R-N-I-S. Um, I am hoping to have something out for sale here um, on your various uh, book purchasing platforms hopefully in the next few months but we will see about that um the actual editing of the text uh that i wanted to put out is pretty close to done but the marketing stuff is all still up in the air so i'm working on that hopefully soon yeah marketing's always a pain but you know that you have us yeah once uh, michael's anthology um hits hits the market whenever that happens i will blast it everywhere all the time until you all read it or die all right <laughs> with that being said um let's get into the conversation for today so i thought we should start out by defining our terms um and it really comes down to the question is what is science fiction i think we got to know that before we can think about how we're going to build a you know, coherent, believable setting in science fiction. So, Michael, when I say that word science fiction, what does that mean to you? Uh, science fiction is a speculative fiction uh, genre. Obviously, hopefully we have a shared understanding of the concept of a speculative fiction genre. It's essentially a what-if story. It's a story structured around 
a set of counterfactual suppositions that then influence how the story progresses. Um, obviously, everybody's familiar with fantasy and horror. Uh, the third big part of speculative fiction is science fiction. And science fiction tends to take as its presuppositions a list of counterfactuals that are at least plausible based on the science of the day when it is written. Um, and the whole point is to project a, maybe not a future, but a a world in which um, this thing maybe could be true. So we're we're not changing the the rules of the universe so much as we are changing the tools that people have to manipulate the world around them um, in various ways. And some things that are generally considered science fiction, obviously a lot of stuff that we call, we refer to as superhero uh, stories actually is falls under science fiction in a lot of ways, um, as does some other things. There's some things that we think of, obviously people think Star Wars. Star Wars is actually, at least in its original concept, is sword and planet fantasy. It is not actually science fiction. Um, Star Trek is science fiction for the most part. Um, and a lot of the modern kind of trashy uh, Star Wars that you see, they try to be science fiction because the people who run it don't actually know what they have and they don't do it very well. So they try to write science fiction. And that's one of the reasons it's terrible. Mm, that's really interesting because that plausibility comes up over and over and over again. That seems to be the key that makes it science fiction and not uh, science fantasy, not uh, what was it you said? World like. World and what? Uh, sword and planet is what it's called. Uh, it's a it's a fantasy genre where essentially you're doing fantasy things. You're just doing it in a multi planetary, multi star, potentially multi galaxy environment. Yeah, and is that different than like a space opera, or is that like a different? Uh, yeah, more space general? opera is. You can actually space opera is more a, um, and this is kind of a term that's been used a lot for a lot of things. Um, space opera is what people have described how I write a lot of ways. Um, but you could honestly write um, Sword and Planet in a space opera way, but for the most part, it's science fiction. Um, and what it is, is um, essentially it's grand, larger-than-life character drama set in a science fiction context. And a there's a lot of, like, um, sort of like, you could almost refer to them as very, you know, in, in, a, in a colloquial cultural sense, very metal world-building elements that are there to kind of make all of the drama larger than life in a science in the science fiction context so you have um you know large interstellar wars of extermination between species is a very common thing in space opera because it makes the stakes very high um and the whole point of the stakes being high isn't to set up big epic space battles that does happen but actually the reason is to put pressure on characters it's not there because we're going to sit here and spend 10 chapters actually going through the battle you know, a battle at this particular world that changes the the, the course of the war. That only, if that happens, it's only because the characters are actually there and making decisions that affect the battle. That makes sense. In, in a sense, and I don't want to go on a tangent, but the opera, we can almost replace that word with drama. I feel like that would probably uh, yes. be... Yeah. Opera is a word a... that is nearly synonymous with, with drama in this context. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And you could kind of have an anything opera then right like a fantasy well i guess at some yes. point you just have a drama right but like yeah okay that makes perfect sense the plausibility bit that the thing that hit me with that is it actually reminds me of if you know you're trying to run a proper um experiment where you've got a hypothesis that's the uh speculative uh well it is it's a speculative hypothesis and then you yep. kind of run in the theater of your imagination right the whole uh setting out and see okay if if x then what? 
and then you just yep. keep going and let it play out. That's that's super interesting. Uh, I really and like that. The the reason I use the word counterfactual for that that's a word that is used in um, especially in expert circles around history. Uh, the word counterfactual refers to um, times when historians ponder what would have happened if. Um, that's specifically referred to as a counterfactual scenario, and historians. Some of them really like going into these and some of them really don't. But a science fiction is more along the lines of how they would look at um, constructing this scenario. They're building a reasonable counterfactual and they're looking at, okay, well, if this happens, what does it change and what doesn't it change? Um, if a, you know, you could have a science fiction story where, and this actually is a science fiction story I've seen in multiple places, where a portal to hell opens up over London. That sounds like a fantasy element. But it's not. Um, if it's handled like a science fiction element, um, you're dealing with what does that change? Well, it creates a great danger to the people of London and to England and to Great Britain and the United Kingdom and depending on what time frame, the British Empire. But other countries will get involved because there may be resources go that you can get from this portal. You could get from the things that come out of it that they want. So they might send people to help or they might start contesting for access to this portal, right? Um, this yeah. is a science fiction way of looking at it, whereas it's a fantasy way of looking at it. You just have the portal there and you don't actually do any of that world building around any of that stuff. The, the portal does this and then all these other fantasy elements come up out of the weeds elsewhere to give other people their fantasy elements. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a, in the fantasy way of looking at this sort of thing, which you could interpret both ways. Um, you're not actually you don't have to worry too much about um the realistic structure of something necessarily you're going to construct a realistic structure eventually but the realistic realistic structure follows a lot of the um the other elements right you're going to put fantasy elements in and the real any realistic setting structure in that science fiction sense has to be subservient to that you can't do that in science fiction. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make it harder to write. It does make it a little more tedious because if you add an element, that element could spiral everything out of control and basically make it impossible to use the setting with that element integrated. Um, or people just accept a contradiction that blows everything up and move on with their lives, which is sadly common. But uh, it's a different way of looking at things that I think a lot of intimidates a lot of people and I don't think it shouldn't. It should. That's good news for me, right? I like the uh, example of the portal, like the hell opening over London being usable even with the science fiction, uh, let's say, because at this point, we're not even really talking about the setting per se. We're talking about something more to do with the way the plot is constructed, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually... Not just, it's not just the plot. Um, the setting sort of has a plot of its own. It sort of has themes that are built into it. And fantasy in particular um, tends to have themes around thing around harkening to a time when things are clear. That means that you're subs you're you're removing a lot of complexity that we expect in our world. When you're having even your standard fantasy story of a knight going to kill a dragon and rescue a princess, the story is very simple. Right? He's not worried about whether the dragon is an evil dragon or a good dragon, or if it's somewhere in between and isn't sure. For the most part, the dragon has kidnapped a princess. He doesn't need to worry about the rest of it. Sim, you know, yeah. if it was a good dragon, it wouldn't have kidnapped a princess. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in a science fiction sense, and you do even see dragons as a concept in science fiction, they are not, wait, you, you don't get that amount of clarity. You have something else replacing that clarity. That clarity, and that clarity is sort of a um, a thread that goes through all of fantasy. This is why George R. R. Martin doesn't write fantasy. Um, and I'm going to leave that there and move on with my life because that's going to cause some problems if uh, certain people listen to that. Um, science fiction kind of lets you set your own thread that runs through it. That's a lot of power you have to make whatever story you want. But it's also a lot of power to blow yourself the heck up. Yeah, the way I look at it, um, it's 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 almost like we're doing the reverse of the um, the the classic symbolism that you might see emergent, let's say in something like folklore or dreams. So, like you just outlined with fantasy, it doesn't really matter what is right. The point of fantasy is like, what do I do? Right, they're like the the actual exact details are irrelevant. Like it, when when the princess is kidnapped by the dragon, you kill the dragon. Like that's what it's trying to teach you, and it does have that that clarity because you don't get tangled in the weeds. Um, but with science fiction, it seems to me we've got this intersection between the setting element introduced, and it's introduced more like a hypothesis, and we're actually, in a sense doing the opposite we're stripping away the um let's say world as theater as how to act and we're looking at it much more as a world um of the material place i don't know if you have happened to or any of the readers or anyone list readers any listeners happen to have read uh maps of meaning uh but if they have um early on in the text and it's a it's a it's a beefy text, and, and so there's when I say early on, it might have been like a couple hundred pages in. Uh, Jordan uh, lays out the difference between looking at the world in those two two ways, like like there are fundamental ways of of approaching reality as material reality, right? So a place with things in it versus a, a place where we act, and when we are, let's say, okay. If this happened, that the portal to hell opens over London, they the science okay, so that could be the opening to either a fantasy or a science fiction set story. But this intersection as to how that let's say how that bit of the setting interacts with the it's not you're right, it's not just a plot, I think it's a theme as well, right? Yeah. Like, what is it telling us? What is it, what is it trying to teach us? And I think where a fantasy story might try to teach you essentially what's a moral, um, I think a science, it sounds to me, and you can tell me, because you're, honestly, you're the expert in this, and I am literally the novice. Um, the science fiction story is more meant to teach you about consequences, almost like reverse history. That is one way you can take it. It's not the only way. You can tell very moral um sort of almost like fairy not to say fairy book stories but stories that have that sort of very clear um uh moral to them in science fiction some of the most famous science fiction stories do have that uh one that i'm not a huge fan of the the actual writing of it but the world building is good that would be 1984 um the moral of 1984 is essentially that 
you know, all of that technology and totalitarianism will intersect. And, you know, if you don't not careful, they will just creep and take over all society and there'll be no escape. Um, it's not a moral told through the characters. It's a moral the characters are trying to break out of and they fail to do so. Um, and this is, you know, this is, you can do it the other way too, where the characters are demonstrating the moral through their own actions or by them failing and then eventually making the right decision at the end, which is a very standard fantasy trope. But you are not bound to do that in a science fiction story. Um, as I said, you kind of get the option to to choose your own through line, your own thread through things. Um, and that that's really not set at the story level. It's set at the world building level. Um, and you can set that as part of writing a story. If the only time you use that particular setting is in that story, then, you know, there's no big difference. But if you're somebody like me who's lazy and reuses a lot of world building so he doesn't have to do it 15 times um, or more than 15 times, um, then then suddenly that that decision you made way back when is influencing stories you're writing now. And if you forget it, you end up with some weird higher level order contradictions that readers who've read everything, if you do find any of those, will pick up on. It's it's very noticeable if you know what you're looking for. Oh, yeah, I definitely uh, have seen that, particularly when you get people uh, reading across um, like the what we could, I guess, call the, the fantasy and science fiction divide. Though the, the more we talk about it, the more, um, yeah, I always get finicky about terms. I'll let that aside. Uh, but yeah, when you know, if you have a very small inconsistency, um, it seems to me because of the nature of the concept, like the the hyper consequential nature of, of writing in science fiction, what you're gonna, you know, someone who likes that, they're gonna notice your small little error you might have made or incontinuity uh, in your fantasy story, and they're gonna like, they're gonna remind you that it's there. Um, and then the, in the typical fantasy reader probably just won't notice because they're not paying as close attention to that element of the uh, the story that they're reading. And that makes think me think that... Well, go ahead. Go it's ahead. a little less that. Um, a science fiction reader, and I, I find this in my experience. I've read a lot of science fiction. I know a lot of people have read a lot of science fiction. They don't pick up on contradictions as such. They pick up on something being done by a character that is a crazy, it doesn't make any sense that it should work, or it doesn't make any sense that that's what they should do based on what they know, which you as a writer with perfect knowledge of both where they should be going and what, you know, what will get them there, you made them make this decision, but it's not a very reasonable decision for them to have made at the time because of the world building you've presented. And that's often what's picked up on is the characters seeming incompetent or stupid or lucky when they're supposed to come off as Maybe not hyper competent, but at least as thinking they know what they do, they're doing, and that and often is a sign of a contradiction. Um, and this is interesting because you expect, oh, they'll catch that I said that this these two planets are fifteen light years apart in chapter one, and in chapter seventeen I said they were seventeen light years apart. Um, they almost never do. That's it's a contradiction. Yes, it is a surface level. I did a dumb. Nobody ever catches that, and the reason they don't catch that is because. That doesn't matter. For the purposes of the plot, the character decisions matter. That arbitrary distance, unless the dif difference between those like, makes a difference in a character's decision, nobody's going to catch that. Okay, that doesn't so that mean you should sense. leave the contradiction in. Yeah, yeah. No, that does make sense. And it would be particular, like, so both in the science fiction story and 
the person who who really enjoys reading science fiction that's like their main thing they read uh it makes perfect sense that even more and more and more minute details of contradiction of character like you mentioned are going to be noticeable because again if we're looking at the story as a world where we've added like a particular set of elements to the setting that is essentially our world like like the the reality that we're familiar with then we have to um we have to look at it as essentially um not necessarily in a strictly deterministic way that's too reductionist i don't mean to imply that but there is a necessary cause and effect um that you're assuming right that that holds up the verisimilitude that the reader is both going to be sensitive to and that will that will stick out more and more and more like a sore thumb given the nature of the setting exactly yeah so the setting now let's actually get into that because i mentioned that word verisimilitude uh right which we essentially just i think in our conversation about character described mostly as believability it feels real it's not necessarily realistic uh because those are two different things um Mm -hmm. so yeah how what's your initial approach to you know say you're, you're about to set out to write a science fiction story say you're me and you really haven't done it before what is it that you do to get yourself off on the right foot to have a story with decent a sci-fi story with decent verisimilitude um i actually don't set out to do world building as such um i set out to write to start designing a story by the way at least with some of my science fiction um some stuff that i have talked about here in the past my Angels Reach fiction and my Gates of Ashera uh, story, which was supposed to initially be several different stories. The original seed story for those settings did not is not the one that I eventually finished writing. Um, it was a different story that I may eventually go back to, especially in the Angels Reach case. The, the one story that defines that setting is um, not any of the stories I've told in there yet for multiple reasons. Um, it was the story I initially planned and... It got me interested in putting the thing together, but other stories sort of seem to take precedence at the time. Um, what seems to be is that those uh, initial stories functioned as um, sort of seed points from which the setting could crystallize around that. And the um, the challenges and the um, the elements that kind of inter- interwoven into that story kind of were a good place to build out from there, kind of in concentric rings to create a larger setting. Um, the uh actual you know it almost doesn't matter what those original stories were anymore um if you were to look at a like a theoretical like you know network map of all the different concepts that go into the angels reach setting that i have spent so long working on you probably couldn't point to the element that was the initial uh the care any of the characters in the initial seed story um which is still that that story is still technically like in there all of its elements still happen, but they don't seem connected because I've done so much around them that just everything's filled out. Um, and I would recommend that I would recommend this where don't spend a bunch of time with world builders disease, especially for like a an interstellar science fiction thing. You'll be at it forever. You can design 650 worlds, but even in a small interstellar area, like you know, from one end of the local galaxy arm to the other, so like one. 700th of the local the total volume of the milky way you're still going to talk 10,000 planets 
you, there's no way you can actually structure the world first and then put stories in it. You have to fill the world out by having stories go out and explore what's out there. What's interesting about that is that doesn't seem all that different than um, other forms of speculative fiction. Like, so if I'm writing a fantasy story, say like the the Wands book series, that's what I've been working on. Um, I, I kind of did that. Like, I didn't build out the whole world to start with. Um, I didn't. Mo there are a lot of elements that were not there before I made the map, and I wrote the whole first book. Then I drew the map and thought, okay, what else? would be around here that I wouldn't have mentioned. Um, so it seems like you do have the underlying plot that would say it's almost like the camera, right? It's revealing the elements of the, uh, let's say, speculative world that is unfolding as a consequence of the introduction of the speculative element. So you've got these two things interacting with each other um in in tandem is almost the way it seems to me like the, yeah. the plot is yeah so that that's kind of interesting and um I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you know i don't have to build out this whole world that was always something that you, you mentioned people being afraid uh, or intimidated unnecessarily that certainly intimidated me because i thought mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna have to do a mountain of research and then plot out a ton and i I I'm, I don't typically do that, and so now I know that I don't have to do that much. But I assume that some amount of research does become necessary, right? Because it we does. do have to, yeah. So, so with, a good example yeah, of yeah. that um, for research, um, when I set these stories in this, um, you know, it's set it almost a thousand years in the future, but it's set in our Milky Way galaxy. All the stars that we can see are still there, so. When I want to set something somewhere that's, you know, within 600 light years of Earth, I have to assume that that star is a star we know. It might have a new name that isn't a number that's in our catalog now, but any star that has a name on Earth now is a potential place where things happen. And I have to know the relative distances between them and the relative, um, you know, for example, which ones are likely to have exoplanets is a major research thing I did. Um, there's actually a lot of the places where things happen. Um, I actually know which stars they are, and they are actually known candidates for exoplanets um, happening. And there's other times when, you know, further out, you can you can take more license with it because we don't actually use our telescopes to look at any small like sun-like star more than about five six hundred light years away. It's just they're small, they're inconsequential. It's not something we do up until relatively recently with some of these um, exoplanet hunting specialist telescopes that just didn't happen. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you do do some research, but it's not necessarily undirected. Just, I need to look at everything. No, you go look at what you need to find. For example, you need to know how far is this from this? Okay. Well, that's easy to find, right? You can, uh, the, the map of the galaxy, as we know, it is open source. You can go find that. There's a bunch of other things that uh, work as well. You don't need to go find specialist data. You need basically just to align things with what is open source information that your reader could Google. And I mean, that's not very difficult as long as you know what it is, the information you want to present is. No, it doesn't sound very difficult at all. In fact, um, even for my fantasy stories, I like to put in um, some realistic, I would say realistic elements like uh, 
for instance, they refer to a lot of herbalism in the first Wand Smoke book. And I went and this sounds very similar to me. It's like, okay, I need to know this information, like say if it was a science fiction story. Okay, which, um, I don't know which galaxy is likely to, or which stars rather, are likely to have you know life in them so I can put the planets that I want that we might not have seen but might be there. Uh, same idea, like, okay, uh, which herbs are supposedly supposed to do X, Y, and Z? And I have to look that up and, and make sure I've got a little bit of continuity there so it's not just random nonsense, right? Like there's there's some tying down to the real world. So we'd say that the research is probably done mostly during the process of the first draft, whether it's it might not be in that same writing session, it might be between sessions, but it's during the drafting or or can you get a lot of it done during the outlining phase, like as you're plotting things out? Um, I very rarely get to follow my outline beyond about one third through anything. Um, but you can do a lot of it during the outline. For example, if you know the places people are going to go, um, you know, you need a place that is, for example, let's say for the purpose of this story, I need a jungle planet. Well, okay, let's be a little more realistic. You need a planet with an equatorial jungle where something is happening, where you need to send your characters. Because let's be honest, a whole jungle planet doesn't make a whole lot of sense, despite what we like to think of in science fiction. Um, uh, most planets are going to have a temperate zone and an Arctic zone, as long as they're going to have, you know, water on the surface. So um, let's say, okay, we need a, we need a jungle region large enough that you can land a spaceship in the middle of it and never walk to the outside. Fair enough. Let's go, you know, you can go through an open source list of, of, uh, stars that have, you know, planets on them or probable planets in some cases say, well, if there's a planet here, you know, is it one that's going to be close enough to be hot or hotter than earth anyway, or just even just as hot as earth would be sufficient. And then, you know, you can go through from there and you then you can build that out and, you know, set it somewhere in space, give it a name, move on with your life. And then the actual details of what's on that world, you can wait till actually writing the thing. Because, again, that part is unknowable is as long as it is reasonable, like to the level of National Geographic special looking at something. If you've looked at a National Geographic, like special on any species, you've probably have enough knowledge about how to do an alien biosphere. It's literally that's all you need. <laughs> That's good to know. That leads me to my next question. So, like, really, how much of this, as opposed to research, is invention of the imagination? Like, it seems like um, a lot of it is. Like, there's points that require research um, around them for that, for the sake of that verisimilitude. But it, it seems to me that there isn't that much less imaginative content in science fiction than, let's say. Uh, since we're comparing to science fiction and fantasy, to a, a fantasy story, is that is that a correct way of thinking about uh, it, or am I making? Yes. Go ahead. And I would argue that a lot of fantasy should have. What I would say is that science fiction has touch points. Touch points are places where a real world truth is referenced as being true, so that you know that everything in this is supposed to be a reasonable forward simulation, or if you're dealing with time travel, back simulation of the real world. Fantasy should do this too, but they don't. My favorite example of this is swords. The sword is a sidearm in medieval combat. That is to say, it is the equivalent of a handgun in modern combat. You don't issue a handgun to every soldier. You issue them a rifle. What's the rifle equivalent in, in medieval combat? It's a spear. The average soldier carries a spear and a shield. How many times do you see fantasy books where the army goes to, goes to war with a sword? 
Yeah, this is actually no. It's a that's also a particular bugbear of mine. Not to go on a tangent, but um, yeah, the amount of um, it's not even historical lack of or lack of historical knowledge, right? Because it's if it were you're not dealing with real history in a fantasy. You're dealing with a counterfactual, but you're still dealing with those. You know, you're dealing with the assumption that those arms and armaments are still effective. The problem is that you don't actually research why they were effective, right? There are definitely weapons which would be more effective, for example, for a somebody who is super strong. Um, a super strength person would use a different type of weapon than a sword or a spear, um, or at least a very differently designed sword or spear. And for the average person who is just, you know, Bobby the peasant who was conscripted off of his dad's farm and put, you know, he was given given weapons by the by the king's uh, officers. He's going to want a spear. It's easier to use, takes less training. He's going to be more effective with it. He'd have to train longer with the sword, and also he'd be at a disadvantage against somebody with the spear anyway. So, right, unless you change the physics of how bodies work, you can't get away from that. And that's something that I only realized in fantasy after I had written science fiction for a while, because that was me taking something from science fiction, that idea of the touch points back to this is still supposed to be a simulation of the real world. And then realizing that not only were they not there in fantasy, which would be okay if they weren't there. It's that when they are present, they don't make any sense. If you made up every, every weapon out of whole cloth, then it wouldn't be a problem, but they don't, they use swords and they use armor and they use shields and they use spears. And that creates a touch point, which doesn't match up. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You met, you mentioned um, that writing in science fiction made you notice this more in fantasy. Um, I obviously don't have that same experience with science fiction, but it was around the time um, I started watching a lot of. This is, I was back in early college years, so undergrad years and years ago now, and I was watching a lot of uh, HEMA historical European martial arts videos and like just gobbling those up because that was the coolest thing ever because you just didn't have that content before then and it was spreading on YouTube like wildfire. But one thing I noticed that happened, and I wonder if this is something that people writing in science fiction might um, have to suffer because I suffered this, is when I started becoming more and more and more familiar with the let's say in my context, because I, I write fantasy, how weapons and armor, let's say, worked, or how actual battlefield tactics work, and what considerations you have aside from just like what's the most effective, because you think, well, what's convenient? What's the weather? Like all these touch touch points that you mentioned for the sake of verisimilitude. What I found, and this might not be applicable to science fiction readers, but what I found is that a lot of consumers, so these are the readers of fantasy content, whether they're books or games or movies or tabletop RPGs, whatever, um, they did not like the verisimilitude that I had included either when I was way back in the day writing up tabletop games or whether um, I was writing my early fiction. didn't matter, right? I, I came into conflict with the consumer because they had imbibed so much, uh, let's say, lack of verisimilitude based on other works that lacked that verisimilitude on and on and on. Is that present at all in the science fiction sphere, or are you guys saved from that? Uh, it can be. Uh, ask people's opinion, and this is the most famous example in science fiction, 
What happens to a human when they're kicked out the airlock of a spaceship? You'll get 50 different answers, and they're probably all wrong, but everybody will tell you, no, that's not what happens when you describe it, if you ever describe it. It's one of the things I actually specifically avoid doing for that reason, right? People mention kicking people out the airlock all the time in my fiction. You never see it happen. And the reason you never see it happen is because I don't want to have to deal with that nonsense. So I have to ask you now, what does happen? Good question. A human's never been put out into the vacuum of space. Really? That, we've never, never had that happen? We've had fatalities in space travel, but they've always been inside, um, inside the atmosphere of Earth. There was a near thing with a Russian space station in the 70s. They actually got into their little escape craft and got back down uh, safely. They, the, the, the people on the, they lost the space station, but the, the crew survived. And so is everyone just basing this off of like when you have divers not decompressing properly, like coming up out of deep ocean? Because I know that. So I'm sure some creepy idiot has done a vacuum chamber test with a rabbit or something. But obviously for obvious reasons, it's never been done with a human. That is super surprising. And uh, yeah, that would be kind of an annoying thing to know that, okay, if I do this, like no matter what I do, there's 10 different camps and nine of the 10 camps will be like attacking me for uh, doing it wrong. So I just got to avoid doing and it at all. Yeah. It's done in Hollywood movies repeatedly. Uh, I think Total Recall has a scene where the guy gets kicked out onto the nearly vacuum surface of Mars. There's one, I think Mission to Mars has one where the guy takes his helmet off in space and dies. Uh, there are others, um, but they're all... They did their best, but none of them, as far as I can tell, is actually accurate. Um, so, yeah, that, it's never actually happened. We don't actually know what would happen. There definitely would be things that would um, that would happen. The person would obviously die if they're left out there long, more than a certain amount of time. We don't actually know what that amount of time is. Huh. Is there anything else like that other than the airlock? Because I'm curious as to, to, to what. Um, there's probably others. Um, the there are various people go back and forth about like alien microbes <clears throat> what would alien microbes do if they were introduced into a human body or if human microbes are introduced into an alien body uh you get a little more license with that one because you can just more or less because we don't know and because it's not exactly like a deterministic situation it kind of depends on the alien and the microbe um you can kind of as long as you're reasonable about it you can kind of get away with doing most anything there um there are a few others. There's um, relativistic space travel. Um, this is one that uh, this is the reason I use jump drives space travel, not warp or um, or uh, FTL drive space travel. Um, that's that's a bit in the weeds, but um, basically, ever since Einstein, we've understood that if you get if you go fast, as in close to the speed of light or faster than the speed of light, if such a thing is possible it screws with time or at least your understanding of time compared to the outside world. And as a result, when you have a ship that's described as going really, really fast, you have to deal with relativity and relativity is no fun. Nobody likes to deal with relativity. Not even the physicists like to deal with relativity. So I, I kind of want to go in the weeds a little bit because I'm sure the listeners do too. As you mentioned, jump warp, and uh, faster than and light travel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I can explain those three if you'd like. Um, please, because you're a gardener standard, anyway, right? 
So you can do you can go uh, into the weeds. <laughs> yes, I was in. Uh, yes, I have too many weeds. Um, so the the three basic ways, obviously, when you look at technically, there's four ways of doing four ways of doing interstellar space travel in science fiction. Uh, I'm sure there are more, but basically, let's deal with these four. The first one is based on our knowledge right now, which is um, the slow road, where your ship doesn't go. It has a, a drive on it that can get you there and back. It's just going to take 600 years. So the crew is frozen in cryostasis and they are woken up by the computer when they get there. This has its obvious problems. Some stories use it because it obviously also has interesting things about it that people use. That's your, your, your least fantastical FTL or interstellar travel system. The other three are actually faster than light systems. You have your warp drive, which is comes from, um, it actually doesn't come from Star Trek. Everybody knows it from Star Trek. Um, it was actually posited by physicists, um, uh, Al, Al, let's see if I can say his name, Albuquerque, Albuquer, something like that, created this concept of the warp bubble where essentially you're, you're moving in your relative little bubble of space. You're moving at a, a normal, not too fast to mess with time speed, but your bubble of space is actually moving itself in a way. And he actually did the math and actually came up with this. And if you could create this bubble of space, you wouldn't actually have any time problems. Um, it's sort of like, how do I describe this? Um, if you can't visualize the physics, it's actually kind of, um, the physics are kind of obnoxious. Um, but it's like you're, you're riding, it's almost like you're surfing on space. You create a wave of space and you're kind of like surfing, except you're kind of like following right behind the crest of the wave. If that analogy makes sense, that's incredibly simplified, but that's how warp drive systems supposedly work. That seems um, to make sense to me. Let's see if I get that one though for the because I'm sure the listeners yep. are trying to see if they know it's so um so obviously if you're moving through space, you have to deal with relativity. But it's in, it's yep. almost like instead of the idea, because I know people have the idea of like um not like a wormhole, but the idea of uh taking one point in space over there and another point in space over here and somehow pulling them closer together so that you only mm -hmm. travel a tiny bit and then it unpulls and then now and we'll get you're to that over here yeah that's, but that's, a, that's, so that's not kind. this but this is like instead of the pulling the whole thing together like the destination and the location what this would be like is taking the the bit that you're at the location you're at and like literally moving that again like you said like a wave so that in little, almost like increments, you get that bit of space is replacing the bit of space in front of it until you get to your destination. That's the exactly. best way I could. Okay. So that's, mm -hmm. and which kind is that? That's a warp drive. Um, again, just like Star Trek, Star Trek got it from LQBR. Again, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but the physics was done in the 50s, I think. And Star Trek came out in the early 60s. And they, Gene Roddenberry actually knew about the physics and he actually picked it up from there. Um, and then we have two more to talk about. There's faster than light, which is often a, um, it's often paired with a different kind, which is subspace travel. Um, faster than light is you're literally just found a way to travel from point A to point B faster than light, breaking the rules. And since you're already breaking the rules, um, you can probably get away with breaking the time rules in some way. Usually they, in this, in that way, they fiddle with time in some way, maybe not the way that Einstein would have predicted. Um, Subspace, the subspace variant of that is where you solve the time problem by essentially traveling through a different dimension. This is the 40K warp. This is Star Wars's hyperspace. This is, um, there's a bunch of these you could go for. Um, but essentially the idea there is the ship is traveling the distance um, 
at a normal speed through a you know through another dimension basically and then it, it has a way of coming back up at a relative point that will get it near its destination after it's traveled a certain distance through the other dimension okay and that makes sense yeah that one's pretty simple um and then the final one is of course jump drives and jump drives are um actually less common in uh visual media farscape uses it um a few others but not very many um the jump drive concept is that your ship has a device which essentially brings two points in space closer together. You could refer to it as a wormhole um, or whatever else you want to do so that it only has to move forward a, you know, a very short distance to cross this join that it's made. And then it's somewhere else quickly without having ever gone fast enough to fiddle with time. And the reason I use that one is so I can say, screw you, relativity, Einstein, go screw yourself. Leave me alone. Yeah, that's reasonable. I wouldn't want to have to deal with that either. Um, all right. Well, thank you for going into the weeds. Um, I really appreciate that. I'm sure the listeners do as well. Now, we've all learned something and we can not be so intimidated. Uh, but going into the weeds reminded me of another issue I think a lot of people see. And um, you see this in science fiction. I just had a conversation with um, author, among other things, Matt Dawson. and. Uh, we talked about uh, our actually no that one wasn't Matt. I did have a conversation with Matt. I'm thinking of Brad, um, but we talked about the death, of, the bureaucratic death of fantasy, and we ended up talking a lot about hard magic systems. And the thing with hard magic systems is they they try to emulate essentially something like real world physics. Um, yep. And when you get into them on the fantasy side of things things get kind of clunky things get kind of chunky um there you know there's a lot of exposition required to explain how these systems work um and i know in some science fiction stories that can be the case as well um what's your experience with let's say uh if i reduce it down to showing versus telling but i like to say like in scene versus summary or narrative exposition right uh with science fiction so this would be like the delivery how do you handle having all of these elements of the setting that really do need to be explained to some degree for the reader to understand without things getting bogged down uh i will answer that before i will say that science fiction suffers from a similar problem that fantasy does in hyper rationalization the problem that it has is that you can hyper-rationalize all you want. The world we live in isn't hyper-rational. So you can actually make it more rational than is realistic to the reader and blow everything up. But in terms of actual presentation, there definitely is a balance to strike with how much detail you give. The author probably needs to know 10, 15 times more detail than is actually presented in any scene about the mechanics of the techno, especially technology. The characters should probably also be relatively familiar with it. Maybe not as familiar with it as the author, but they should know a lot about it too. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, if they understand their technology, they're not going to go explaining it to each other. And the so who explains it to the reader? But the reader also needs to know how the technology affects the stakes of the scene. So you really have to find some way of interleaving just enough about it. So essentially to know what it does and what its limitations are in an efficient manner. And for any, if you spend even two sentences on every piece of technology in a setting that, you know, is set a thousand years in the future, you're going to be there all day. You're going to spend a lot of time on that. 
So oftentimes my best practice on this is really simple. I just use comparative uh, descriptions. A new piece of technology is given often as a replacement for or a substitute for or as an alternative to one that the character already has. And they have to sit there and decide, okay, do I prefer in one case I'm thinking of directly? Well, I much prefer the the uh, the, the railgun that I had, but somebody took it away from me. I don't have it anymore. They gave me this other thing, which doesn't, you know, it's it's a high-tech, cool plasma pistol. It's a lot lighter. It's a lot smaller. It shoots basically a ball of flame down the corridor, but I hate it. It sets things on fire, but it doesn't actually put holes in anything. And right there, you get you get exactly what you need. You don't know you don't need to know how it creates the balls of fire that shoot down the corridor. Doesn't matter. You get the difference. You know what the advantage and the disadvantage is of both, just from the comparison to the one that we have now versus the one we didn't have. It was taken away. And yeah, this is this is a good way. You can't use this all the time, but you can use this. You know, if you start comparing things relative to other things, the reader gets a good sense of the stakes relative to each other, which is really all you need in a story. You don't actually need to know the stakes relative to a human standing on Earth with human 21st century technology. You need to know the stakes relative to the other characters and the story itself, which is, you know, comparative is enough for that. Yeah, I've seen you use this method uh, a number of times. Um, I know in a particular work, there was like a like skin tight space suit like you know you always see um and i remember reading the bit of the work and 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 thinking as i was reading the description of the suit it's like you know this would make a really great pulp cover like you would definitely put this in your story if for no other reason to get your story like have to have the cover image because that's what people did back then um but then you went in and described the uh you 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 kind of paired off this isn't exactly comparative but you paired off the presentation of the thing um with its function kind of side by side and that reminds me a bit of the comparative example like oh i had this piece of tech now i but i had now i have to deal with this other thing it does this but not the thing that i wanted or where with this example it's uh, we have this, and it's you know, oh, it's a skin tight suit, which gives uh, tactile feedback, or I can't remember exactly uh, what the particular suit did, but it would make sense that you would say, in this case, uh, combined imagery with the exposition, uh, and in the other case, it's let's say uh, the stakes combined with the exposition, and and would you say it would be fair that that's really how you make it efficient is it might be the stakes. It might be a particular bit of imagery you were already going to need to describe. Just there's something present in the scene that needs to be dealt with, and by simply attaching um, the ex expositive bit of tech explanation onto something that's already present, it becomes relevant, and that creates a uh, let's say a natural limitation, so that as an author you're not tempted to go on and on and on and on and explaining something that's not relevant to the reader. Does that sound fair? Yeah. And I've gone back and forth on how much uh, tech description I give. In some projects, I'm very light with it to the, and I'm trying to focus on characters. In others, I try to be, and I, I jokingly refer to this as being more male coded um, because uh, it seems to be more of the readers who like the crunchy descriptions are more guys. And um trying to be more openly male coded and giving descriptions of things in greater detail. Um, 
And I, I do that sometimes, but I don't necessarily think that's an, a permanently sustainable thing unless it's for a particular style, for a particular story. Um, there's a lot of times when the reader's just like, oh, come on, I don't care about the technology. Get on with what the characters are doing, what's going on in this scene, or, you know, I don't care about this. You know, you're taking up words. You should be telling me what the characters are feeling or thinking or what's actually going on in front of them that they're looking at while this is happening, right? So you you really do have to strike a balance and the balance isn't the same from story to story. Um, some stories are going to fall down more on the give more descriptions. Military science fiction loves describing everything about the technology, for example. Um, and even some that I like. Uh, there's a author, Chris Kennedy, I think is his name. Um, he writes the, the Four Horsemen series. He's got some collaborators, but he's the main guy. Um, his writing is very heavy on, you know, when somebody comes in, you know, and they're, you know, for example, somebody, they're, the mercenaries are, are deploying to the surface of a planet to defend a mine from somebody. When everybody comes out of the dropship, you basically get a description of what their gun does and how big and heavy it is or how comparatively light it is and all this stuff. You don't need that, but then it all probably gets used when the inevitable pirates show up and they have to fight them, right? Yeah. And you can it, go it, that way, but you also don't need to. A lot of stories don't need that much detail. You can skip all that and you can basically just say it's a laser gun and people will just be okay with that and move on with your life. Yeah, in that sense, it depends um, if our story falls into one of those other categories we had mentioned earlier. Like we brought up the fact that you could have a science fiction space opera, but it doesn't have to be science fiction in the way we described for it to be a space opera um, or any other form of, you know, attached setting element opera at the, you know, at the other end of it, right? If we're focusing on the interpersonal relationship between a mercenary captain and a uh, space pirate, um, then like, okay, maybe the tech doesn't matter so much in those scenes. Uh, but we're, we're in the actual battle, like the space battle, maybe you have some more room, maybe it's more interesting to go into the particulars about how these weapon systems are operating because that's where the action is and that's going to be a balance based on the story uh and the audience too right like i immediately i thought okay well you know depending i i this is probably going to get me in trouble on youtube but that's fine i have a, a saying that i say and i think like all men are kind of autistic and all women are kind of schizophrenic and what i mean by that is like that's the object versus subject focus, right? So mm -hmm. if you see sub, like, and I could just say that out, if everything to you is an object, you're autistic, right? You don't look at the world as with people. You don't like people because people are unpredictable. They don't operate like objects. And if you're schizophrenic, you see people everywhere. Um, yep. And I think, I think, yeah, if you've got that hyper male audience you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, oddest who want to know every single thing about how this gun works to the point where uh I, i've had people like i had an engineer one time this is a bit of a tangent but he um i had him watch the animated film gene Row the wolf brigade and in one scene you see this car but before you get to see the outside of the car the camera lets you see the dashboard and the uh people animating this were really detailed and this guy because he's an engineer and he, he also was a fan of cars from the dashboard inside the car took notice of the details and was able to say hey is that this car and then it zooms out and it was the model of car that he predicted it was um, That's cool. so definitely yeah yeah it was super cool when it happened um but 
but the the point there is you definitely have people who are like they want to know like they want to know every little detail they want to know how the weapon operates or uh, how the computer system works or all of that so it depends on the audience for sure yep so is there uh since we're we're coming in toward uh the end of a, of our, our time um uh, is there anything in particular any maybe advice or direction that you would like to give uh to people who are like myself who one day want to set out to write science fiction that we haven't yet discussed or just maybe a summary of something you want to tell them before they jump in? I would say um, there's something I wrote in my notes that we kind of touched on, but I don't think it was uh, hit to a certain level of detail that I'd prefer. It's that when it comes to world building in science fiction is that the why does this setting exist question is not answered for you by the genre. You have to decide the answer to that question. And it almost doesn't matter what you pick as long as it's a reasonable sounding answer. It can be pretty simplistic. Um, I have a my one dystopian story. The reason its setting exists is so I can literally answer the the, the uh, cliche question, you know, or not necessarily answer it for the reader, but answer it often for myself. Uh, the, the the super cliche question: Why does God permit uh, bad things to happen to good people? Right? Everybody's heard that question. Everybody, you know, you don't have to be. A, of any kind. And the whole setting exists to explore the answers to that question. That sounds pretty cliche, but a whole bunch of crazy world building comes out of that. Um, you really should, you don't necessarily have to start this. You know, I want to write a story about people who, you know, go out on a rocket ship and explore new planets to set them up for colonization. You don't have, you can start there and you don't have to come up with the why right away. But anytime you want to do anything complex with it, especially when you're dealing with something that's multi-world spanning with a lot of details you need an overarching answer to a why question to sort of rein you in and say what you cannot include because there are things that you can include which will provide weird high order contradictions you'll never chase down correctly unless you have a why that will filter it and give you a good view of what it is that is essentially what is the through line of this setting i know we mentioned that there should be a through line you get to pick but don't just say eh, it's fine uh the through line helps you catch problems. It's not just there for the benefit of the reader. It's there for your benefit as the creator. Don't forget it. Yeah, let's. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I want to with the last bit of time that we have, I want to kind of chase that down because I know um, outside of science fiction, I, I do something similar, right? And I would I would describe that as like the theme, the answer, the, the answer to that why question would be the the theme. It's like the thesis of the work, the through line that ties it all together. Um, and we talked about way at the beginning how, okay, so let's say this is, again, fantasy because it seems to be a useful comparison. That answer, it's, it answers that why question in terms of how to act. But we talked about how mm -hmm. science fiction answers these questions in terms of what is. And I'm really curious, when you set out to answer your why question, um, it, how, how it is the, 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 that what is element, like looking at the uh let's say necessary let's say material consequences that come about or factual we could say uh i, I know obviously this is all counterfactual but like the 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 factual counterfactuals if you will um how in your experience do those tie in um to that why question in particular and if that's not very clear uh, i could finish off with this little bit and so if i have a theme in fantasy, 
the thesis is always a kind of if you do x and y conditions, the results will be z, something like that. So it's a, again, it's a moral. If you do, if, if the circumstances are this, and you act this way, or someone acts this way, you'll get a particular result. And I guess my question is, okay, if if if, if it's not, if you act in this way, that's not the question. That's not the kind of question that science fiction tends to answer. It's if things were this way. Um, under these circumstances, this will happen. How does that relate to to the to the theme exactly? Like in, in the so, way that you just described. Um, one thing I think a lot of it comes down to, especially for um, for science fiction, um, though I think this applies somewhat to horror as well, depending on your horror. Um, it's uh, if this were the case, um, and maybe it will be the case, is part of that question. Uh, if this were the case. Um, how would it change how we deal with our environment? And how would it change how we deal with each other? And I think that second question is more the focus of a lot of my own writing is how does all this change how we deal with each other? Um, is a, it's, it's a very important question in my science fiction. Um, key relationships between characters make or break most of my plots. Not all, but most. Um, and what what you're getting at is that the technology is all there, but the human is the same kind of human that we have now. And you can say, oh, yeah, my science fiction is on a different planet, no humans. Yeah, but they're human enough that we can write stories about them. Because one of the clearest definition of human that I know is that it's a it's a creature that exists almost sort of inside of stories of their own construction, right? If you can write a story about an alien, they're human in a sense. And trust me, I've played with that one too. But um, you can't get away with this by saying, oh, they're not human anymore. They're this other alien or they're not human anymore. There's so many chips in their brain that they're not. I play with that one too. Do not assume that that's not still a human. It is. So it's what you have when you have these questions, you know, if all this is happening, what what is it that is that humans will do with each other and their environment? Well, if you introduce another element that suddenly changes the those changes how humans would interact with their environment in a big way that you didn't initially plan, then you know, well, that element is probably going to create problems. Um, for example, if, you know, if you have a, um, let me see, if you have a technology which allows people to, um, you know, to, to go out and just point, you know, point a laser at the ground and a, a giant castle erupts from the ground there for them to live in. Um, that's, all well and good, but then how do you deal with the fact that you have people living in little huts they built out of local wood on another planet next door? Um, why not the same ship go over there and laser them a couple castles to live in, right? So you've created a, you've solved a problem you, that that shouldn't have been solved. Um, and you get, you kind of, you when you have your why questions, you know, at least in general, you see, oh, well, that was an important problem that people had that was important for me to deal with they just went away because i introduced something new maybe i shouldn't introduce that thing because if it's introduced and it makes an important problem just go away it kind of undermines what's what's going on in the whole setting and it will create more difficult to chase down problems too it's just the first thing it does is erase a problem immediately without any consequences that i've had here for a while that's been very important that undermines all the stories where that problem is involved, but it also undermines the implied story of everybody else in the setting who's been dealing with that problem in the background. And that's just as important. 
That makes perfect sense. Okay, so tell me if you, and this will be my last question, I think, because I think I've got it snapped in my head. So, because uh, I'm really stuck on this dichotomy of, of fantasy and sci-fi, and the way I think I have it formulated is, okay, we have the fantasy in the realm of action, we have science fiction in the realm of, of material things, or the environment, let's say, environmental factors. It can uh, be both. Uh, yeah. And so when you have the formula, with it, the more fantasy typical it is, the more the, L, the uh, what we would say is the independent variable, right? The, the, the variable that we actually get to control and decide what it is, uh, that's going to be more the action focus. And then with the more science fiction it is, the, the independent variable is more so that setting element that we introduce, right? So the human action element kind of is... Um, is the dependent variable that when you introduce the setting element, what happens, right? That was like, that's kind of your answering. And that's why with science fiction, you, you can't, if you introduce something that answers what happens, you've defeated the point of, you, you haven't asked the question. You've just, you just made a declarative statement. There's no, there's no thesis. There's no experiment. There's no theater of the mind and letting things play out. Yep. Uh, and then the, the fantasy equivalent of doing that would be like um, the kind of a wizard did it kind of deal where you use a fantastical element to just answer the problem instead of, let's say, using the autonomy of the, the, the action of the character in that fantastical uh, setting to, to answer the question, right? It's that same kind of mm -hmm. paving over. Okay. Yep. So if, all right, so that makes perfect sense now, because that and that really, ah, I always learn something new on these podcasts. It's super cool. Um, all right, well, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap things up here, Michael? Um, not really. Um, I think we've covered the the general stuff. I could talk about particular details and why I think they're a terrible idea. About half the time, I could talk about you know which details I I don't recommend to people or do recommend to people to employ in science fiction stories if as they're starting out, but that would take a long time, maybe a whole another hour. And uh, I don't think we have that hour. So I probably, this is probably a good place to stop. All right. I'm going to have to do another one of these. This was really fun. All right, guys, before you go, uh, I'm going to direct you over to my Kickstarter campaign. I'm going to make sure you guys remember that. Um, I won't go on and on and on. Easiest way to find it, go to my website, wildislit.com. Gigantic picture that says Kickstarter campaign on it. Click on that picture. That takes you to the page. Um, you know, Financial times are tough, but what would really help me is if you just share the link everywhere like it would i would love it if you were just obnoxiously show it to all your friends family and acquaintances that would be really cool thank you so much for doing that also go check out michael's stuff that he has available for you the public to see on minds.com um and that's just at eternus a-e-t-e-r-n-i-s did i spell that right you got it right it's minds.com slash a-e-t-e-r-n-i-s haha <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, check his stuff out. Um, it's really great. Hey, hey, what you should also do while you're there on minds.com is subscribe so you can get his great audio content as well of some of his works. And uh, they would help you know, help support him, help him get this anthology out there. I would appreciate it. I'm sure he would. You're Michael. I'm sure you would appreciate that too, right? I would. Um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about the anthology project. I've got about two more stories to actually edit a little bit. 
Uh, and then the, the all important wife reads it all test. Um, and then I got to find a cover. Yeah. So yeah, keep up with his stuff. Look out for that anthology. I'm going to blast about it everywhere. Um, because I'm actually really excited. Uh, I I've gotten a, I've had the privilege to read, uh, a bit of Michael's work and it's all really, really, really good. All right, guys, thank you for joining us on our conversation on world, world welding, and I will see you next time.